I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I'm Guy Barter, and welcome to Gardening with the RHS. We start today's show in a rather special environment, a peat bog. These habitats are vitally important in the fight against climate change. Peat holds more carbon than all of the world's forests combined, and area for area, peatlands generally contain more carbon than rainforests. They also help keeping our drinking water clean, reduce flood risk and provide habitats for some incredible plants and animals. In fact, a recent study by the RSPB found that for every pound invested in peatland restoration, we get over four times as much back in economic and social benefits. Quite the substance. But despite all these benefits, peatlands are under threat. Peat is widely used in gardening as it's a big component of growing media, potting compost and the like. And as a result, at least 80% of our peatlands here in the UK have been damaged or destroyed. Which is why at the RHS we're saying no to peat. We're already 98% peat-free and we're committed to making it 100% by 2025. It's such an important topic, so in this week's show, we're exploring the issues around peat in depth. Later, I'll be getting expert tips from someone who grows thousands of plants a year in peat-free compost. RHS Garden Wisley's propagation team leader, Sam Gallivan. Peat-free, it always looks dry on the top, and it's not necessarily dry all the way through. So people do tend to be a little bit, they overwater a little bit too much. Botanist Joshua Stiles will be getting excited about the vital role sphagnum moss plays in pulling CO2 out of the air. They can create environments that are soggy and as acidic as pickled onions, I think they are (laughs) marvellous. And we're taking things to the very top as we speak to Rebecca Pau, Minister for the Environment. We did say that if enough progress hadn't been made by 2020, we would step in to start to take more serious measures. But let's begin outside. Sarah Johnson is a projects manager for the Lancashire Peatland Initiative, part of the Wildlife Trusts. And she's joining us from a peat bog to explain why these places are so important, especially for our wildlife. I'm just out for a walk on one of our lowland peat bogs. 
beautiful spring day. And this time of year, those vibrant greens of the sphagnum mosses, those building blocks of peat really stand out. But I can see there's some cotton grasses just coming into bud there. And so before too long, we'll see the white flowers of the cotton grasses bobbing about as well. Oh, look, I can see above me, there's a pair of oyster catchers. I wonder if they're looking for somewhere to nest. It's pretty wet underfoot. Just how a peacock should be. Bogs or peatlands are a type of wetland which are made up of soil which is formed from slowly decomposing plants. Because basically healthy peatlands are, are wet and boggy, they're almost entirely rainwater fed and they're acidic and low in nutrients and oxygen. And this means that the plant matter can't decay properly. So each year new plants grow and die and layers of plant material gradually accumulate over hundreds and thousands of years to form peat. So peat bogs support highly specialised communities of plants and wildlife that are perfectly adapted to this hostile environment and are not found anywhere else, basically. Peatlands cover around 10% of the land in the UK. That's nearly 3 million hectares. And the most of them are found in the north and the west, but there are also some areas in the east of England, such as the Fens and the Norfolk Broads, and a little bit down in the southwest in the Somerset levels. And peatlands, they include some of the country's most important protected areas for their because of their wildlife and their outstanding natural beauty. But also, especially in lowland regions, they're found in areas which are also managed for agriculture. And unfortunately, because of this, over the centuries, peat has been cultivated, drained and degraded. And a lot of the peatlands in our country now are in very poor condition. When I say they're in poor condition, I mean that um, in order to cultivate peatlands, they need to be drained. They need to be dried out because obviously naturally they're very wet. And when you drain the peat, it dries out and it degrades. That means that it's easily eroded. It's easy to wash away and it also becomes much more of a fire hazard. And Peatlands are really vital for many reasons for us, for the wildlife that you find there and its natural water storage capacity, but also because peat, when it's in good condition, is a fantastic store of carbon. But when it's dried and degraded, that carbon is released again, contributing to climate change. About 80% of the UK's peatlands are damaged in some way. And in my region, in the northwest where I work, just 2% of our lowland peatlands are still in good condition. The rest have been drained and degraded. We're doing what we can to protect and restore those remaining fragments of peat habitats. But those that have been degraded and drained, we're doing a lot of work to re-wet those habitats. We block ditches to stop the water leaving the site. And we also sort of, for example, create buns, which are low peat walls in order to keep the water on the site. Because basically peat bogs are entirely rainwater fed. So we need to find ways to keep that rainwater on the site to create the conditions we need. On the surface, peat bogs might look like wilderness areas. But if you take a closer look, they're really home to remarkable plants and animals that have adapted perfectly to survive in these very nutrient poor, acidic, hostile conditions that you find on peat bogs. 
One of my favourite times to visit is in sort of late spring, early summer, because they're a vibrant mix of colours. You can see the, the colourful patchwork carpet of the sphagnum mosses. These sphagnum mosses, they're the building blocks of the peat. Um, you might see the white sways of the cotton grasses, which are also another pioneer plant, another keystone species for our peatlands. And also there's the, the crossleaf heath, which is a plant which is a part of the heather family. And it has these lovely pink flowers, which um, flower quite early and are an important nectar source for some of our invertebrates that we find on the peat bogs as well. So one of the butterflies that we find in our peat bogs is called, well, we, we're starting to find again, I should say, is the large heath butterfly, also known as the Manchester Argus. And this butterfly, it's quite a small butterfly. It's about four centimetres wingspan. And it's kind of an orangey colour with spots. And they were once found across our wetland habitats because of the habitat degradation, the plants they needed disappeared and the butterfly disappeared along with it. And so we've been doing a lot of work with partners across Greater Manchester to bring back that butterfly back to our peatlands. We reintroduced it back to the region last year after three year work to get the habitat right. It's amazing. You can say, see over 100 species of bird across our peatlands. It could be, you know, you might see swoops of swifts flying over the wetlands, or you might see birds such as the hobbies, which is one of our most agile and acrobatic birds of prey, you know, hawking for dragonflies over the mosses as well. So absolutely beautiful. I thought it was great to hear from Sarah about the many species thriving in peatlands. And her mention of sphagnum mosses as the building blocks of the peat really caught my attention. This species is totally fascinating and has such a vast capacity to help our planet. So much so that at the RHS, we're trialling cultivating it, outside of peat bogs, of course, as part of our peat-free commitment. If you think I sound passionate about this small but mighty moss, wait until you hear from our next guest, botanist and ecologist Joshua Stiles is fascinated by sphagnum. Get ready, we're about to get nerdy. I think sphagnum are something else, really. You can look at a carnation and it's beautiful, but it doesn't really do much. Whereas the sphagnum, they're not only gorgeous, but they can create some of the best carbon stores on the planet. They can create environments that carnivorous plants grow in, that all kinds of other rare plants grow in. They can create environments that are soggy and as acidic as pickled onions. I think they are marvellous. <laughs> Sphagnum are not only gorgeous and amazing for their incredible and strange adaptations, but they are probably the most important group of plants on the planet for carbon capture. So they are able to maintain this wetness in their environment and they're able to make their environments really super acidic. And what that means is that bacteria, unlike in other habitats like woodlands and grasslands, for example, bacteria aren't able to get in there and fungi to break down dead plant matter. And so sphagnum are able to create these amazing habitats, peatlands, where a substance known as peat is able to be formed, which is basically plant matter that can't be properly broken down. I first came into contact with sphagnum moss when I was walking out with my granddad in Macclesfield on the biggest raised 
bog in Cheshire, which is a big peatland called Danes Moss. I distinctly remember coming across all this sphagnum and then I spotted something red with little glistening droplets on, on the end of these leaves and I, I went a bit closer and it was a sundew, which is a gorgeous carnivorous plant, but it's also a bit brutal. So it has leaves that are coated in these tentacle-like hairs that exude droplets of digestive mucus. And then as soon as a, a little gnat or a mosquito walks over the leaf of a sundew, it's pretty much doomed. So that is the first time I remember coming across sphagnum. And it's very good memory. <laughs> So sphagnum mosses are able to change entire landscapes and they also have some pretty incredible adaptations. So sphagnum moss, pretty small plants, but they're able to suck up and keep stored in their tissues over 20 times their own weight in water. And so that incredible adaptation means that they're able to not only keep themselves wet in the driest of summer months, but they're also able to keep their environments incredibly saturated and wet in those really, really dry periods. We only have a handful of sphagnum species in Britain, but they are really strange looking. They almost look like little alien Christmas trees. And they come in a range of shapes and sizes. So you can get little skinny bits of sphagnum moss. So you could get big chunky fat sphagnums. They come in a range of colours. So you've got things like red bog moss, which are this wine red, crimson colour, gorgeous thing. And then you've got things like golden bog moss, which are this divine golden colour. There's also a really interesting sphagnum moss that we get in the UK called drowned cat moss. And it's so named because it likes really, really wet environments. And when you pull this drowned cat moss, sphagnum cuspidatum, out of these bog pools, it looks like drenched animal fur, which is how it's got its, its name, drowned cat moss. <laughs> Plants as a whole are super, super important when it comes to ecosystem services. So what they're able to offer to biodiversity, to us. And when it comes to the things that plants are able to offer us, it isn't just that they're important for our mental health and biodiversity. Plants are super important when it comes to our pharmaceuticals. Well over a quarter of our pharmaceuticals, our drugs, our medicines come from plants. Studies currently suggest that we're losing attributed to worldwide plant extinctions. We're losing a major drug at least once every two years. And sphagnum have been historically used as an antiseptic. There's an enormous diversity of plants that grow on peat bogs. When we look at plant extinctions in particular, we need to be considering the serious problems that that could be causing us. We could be depriving the next generation and generations after us of critical medicines. In 2021, we have so many alternatives to peat. There is absolutely no excuse to be using it in compost. It's ridiculous. IUCN 
which is the International Union on the Conservation of Nature, have some statistics. And they show that about 5% of our overall greenhouse emissions internationally come from degraded peat bogs. It's a significant amount of carbon that is being released into the atmosphere for no good reason. And so if there's one thing that I would love everybody to do, that is to buy peat-free compost. There's just no excuse to be buying compost with peat in it. It causes so much devastation and it's absolutely heart-wrenching. Great hearing from Joshua. It really is important that we all make the move away from peat-based compost. Working for the RHS, I feel I need to get really stuck in with the peat-free compost, and I've been trying them and messing around with them for about 20 years. And I tend to try a wide range of different ones, so I'm better placed to advise the public. And I've had my ups and I've had my downs, and there's always more to learn. So I'm joined now by Sam Gallivan, Propagation Team Leader at RHS Garden Wisley. Hello Sam, how are you doing? It must be your really busy time of year. It is actually, Guy, yes. Hi. We're seed sowing, potting, you name it, we're doing it at the moment. Rushed off our feet. Well, thinking about it makes me feel tired already. So do you buy in all your peat-free potting compost? Yes, we do. At the moment we're using the Melcourt peat-free, the silver mix, alongside Melcourt cuttings and seed sowing compost. And we're trialling this year for the first time their ericaceous peat-free as well. What's the major difference between peat-based and peat-free compost in the way they behave? I think probably the last time I used peat for a lot of things was probably about 15 years ago. So to be honest, how peat works now is a total mystery to me. But we have had some plants in more recently that have come from a totally different nursery that has contained peat. And we find it dries out so much more quickly, it seems. And we can't seem to get a handle on it anymore with the watering. Peat-free, and this is from our experiences, certainly from the Melcourt and possibly from one of the other ones that we've had in past years, it always looks dry on the top and it's not necessarily dry all the way through. So people do tend to be a little bit, they overwater a little bit too much thinking and they don't actually lift the pot and check or actually put their finger in the pot to check to see if the moisture is there. And so there can be a little bit of risk of overwatering. That's a very good point. Yeah, the other thing we find is, for instance, with pelagoniums, it's a plant that quite often, as growers, we would have a habit of allowing them to dry out quite thoroughly before re-watering. However, with peat-free composts, we find the peat-free can still have a, a little bit of moisture in it. It feels moist, but it seems to lock it away from the plant a little bit more. So you can't necessarily go as dry, maybe, as you would have done with the peat mixes. There's some really good tips there for gardeners so they can get the most out of their peat-free potting media. And I expect um, you encounter all sorts of people who ask all sorts of things about peat-free compost. Are there any particular common mistakes that you'd like to warn people about? It's the overwatering. It seems to be the worst thing with people. They, they don't necessarily check the compost to make sure it's dry all the way through before watering. They automatically assume dry top, right, drown everything instead of just checking. I think that's probably the biggest thing that we find when we talk to people that is the mistake they make. 
One of the commonest questions people ask me is, how often should I water this? The answer, of course, is how long is a piece of string? (laughs) How do people actually check how wet the compost is? We, as a team, especially this time of year, because if you're looking at springtime where we are at the moment, plants tend to dry out very oddly. There's no definite sort of like, right, we water every day or we water every other day. So what we tell our students, and it's always a good piece of advice, is if you're unsure with the container, as long as it's not too heavy, obviously we're not expecting large terracottas, if you were to lift the pot, feel the weight of it when you've watered it for the first time, and then you get to understand how the plant feels in its container when it's properly watered through, and then periodically just go around and just lift the pots up and actually feel the weight of them. And you get to judge what the plant feels like when it's fully watered or it needs a water. It'll start to feel a lot lighter to the touch and to the lift when you do it. And there's absolutely no harm if you've got a new type of compost you're not used to yet. If it's possible, just tip the plant very carefully out of the pot with the root ball hopefully attached And you can actually see the actual compost and see whether it's moist or not. And the roots, if it's been properly watered, the roots will be at the bottom of the pot, not the top, because they'll be going down towards the water, which you've thoroughly moistened the whole root ball. That's the best way, I can honestly say. You can put your finger in if you want to, if it's a really, really heavy plot and actually fill for the moisture. But if you can get the pot and actually lift it so that you can actually get used to the weight ratios. And that's always the best thing. Finally, Sam, having used up a lot of your time, and I know you're itching to get back to the potting machine, have you got one take-home tip to think about for people who are thinking about using peat-free compost? Yes, I think the main thing is when you go out looking for a peat-free compost, look for quality. Look to make sure that the compost that you're buying When you open one bag and then you open a second bag, it all looks the same. It's even across the board. Some peat-free composts, especially when they first came onto the market some years ago, it wasn't the same across the board. It wasn't if you bought a bag of compost and you bought the same brand two weeks' time, it wasn't the same. It didn't have the same makeup. And once you find one, you're happy with it. It works with everything that you do. Stick to it. You'll find your watering is a lot easier if you have the same compost right the way through your garden in your pots. And we found that here. If we ever swap over compost brands, we find as soon as we do that, then the watering becomes a lot harder to do. So look for quality. Look for a good quality brand, something that suits you and suits the climate you're gardening in. If you have a wetter climate, free draining is fantastic. If it's a drier climate, maybe you want to add a little bit more loam to it or something just to keep a little bit more moisture in there for longer to help you out when it comes to watering. But yes, I would always say quality. Thanks, Sam. Those are really good tips and really interesting information that you've spared the time to tell us there. Thank you very much. No problems. Obviously, we can all do our bit to reduce the use of peat in horticulture. But we can't transform the industry without some support from above. So at the RHS, we're also looking to the government for help in the transition. To find out the latest, we sent our roving reporter, Chris Young, to speak to Rebecca Pau, Minister for the Environment. 
So one of the most important environmental issues for gardeners at the moment is, of course, that of peat. And we've been discussing for many years now about how the industry can wean itself off peat and at the same time ensure there is high quality growing media for gardeners to use to grow their plants. Do you think it's fair to say that successive governments have been slow to really understand and support the phasing out of peat for horticultural use? Well, it's been a commitment of government to transition away from using peat in horticulture. And there's been very much a voluntary approach mm. set for retailers in particular and manufacturers to move away to alternatives. But we did say that if enough progress hadn't been made by 2020, we would step in to start to take more serious measures. And whilst a lot of good work has been done, that has to be said, because actually the volume of peat used in growing media has reduced. It's reduced actually by about 25% between 2011 and 2019. There's still a lot of peat used. And so that's why we've now announced that we will be bringing forward a consultation this year where we will ask very serious questions about can we go that step further and absolutely phase it out? We've always said we will do that by 2030, but we will be looking all around the subject to see, is there an opportunity or a way of doing that sooner? As you said, you know, there was that original aim for 2020 to phase out peat for home gardeners and 2030 for the industry as a whole. What is the government actively doing to help encourage us gardeners to stop using peat? Yes, but it is very much working with the industry itself as well. So what we are doing is we're actually funding uh, with industry some work on peat replacements in professional horticulture. So we're co-funding another project with the horticultural industry and monitoring the composition of growing media, which includes peats, because you've got to get the comparisons, supply for the amateur and the professional use in the horticultural market. We are also obviously doing our much wider landscape work on peat and we've brought forward a raft of measures which includes our nature for climate fund so that's a 640 million pound fund which is for restoring planting trees and restoring peatlands but just going back because you, you mentioned about funding for peat replacement and working with the industry the industry has been quite slow to really ensure that there's stability in peat-free products we know there's a pricing problem with peat-free products we know a lot of peat-free compost are actually more expensive to the consumer than peat-based do you think there's some way the government can actually help alter consumer behavior because if, you know if you think of like should there be a carbon tax like there's been a sugar tax on drinks well that's why we're consulting so in a consultation we'll use a lot of the detail that we've already gathered in talking to all these different stakeholders to put into the consultation. But actually, so much progress is now being made that I don't think it's a very big step once we bring about the consultation, look at all the findings of that, ultimately with a view to legislating to potentially bring about a ban. What I think from talking to the industry, the industry is crying out for, and manufacturers is leadership on this, because after all, for them to invest in and work on alternatives, they need to know that there's going to be a secure future in moving in that direction. So, so it's really that's where government comes in, is to give the right signals so that then you encourage the right private investment into the products. So I think we're already moving quite fast and we just need those final levers to take the next step. 
It's been interesting having talked, spoken to the industry over the years. People have talked: should there be like a traffic light system? Should there be like the food labelling system in terms of levels of sugar and salts and things? Because I think the government probably wasn't as committed as you sound like you are, Rebecca. There hasn't been the pressure for the industry to do that, and we haven't had the labelling system. What I would say on that is that there's been a lot more publicity now about the restoration we're doing, say, in the mm. Great Northern Bog, in the Myers Pizza area, up on the borders, which government is funding a lot of that work to restore peanut. Now, the more we hear about that, the more we hear about the precious habitats, the associated wildlife, the carbon capture, the, the carbon, carbon storage, the water containing properties of peat. And we're starting to hear more, which I'm pleased about, because that's one of the things we're actually funding. People then will make that link with, oh my goodness, the peat in my bag is actually what they were talking about, that they're trying to save. So I shouldn't be using it. So I think that will join up uh, that messaging. And that's where government is also playing its part. Okay, so just a quick question on on the consultation. You mentioned that earlier, and I wasn't aware of that. Can consumers, can us gardeners, add into that consultation, or is Mm. that industry-wide? No, no, anyone can submit to the consultation. So it's something you need to look out for, and we have said that we will be consulting in the summer. So that's a commitment we've made. That's hot off the press, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) In this digital Uh, world. (laughs) uh, Yeah, hot off the air, exactly. So, Rebecca, do you think in a few years' time that we will, if we were um, interviewing each other again, in five years' time, will there be any peat extraction in this country for horticultural use? I can't say that, Chris. We'll see how the consultation goes. But, you know, the intention, there's an absolute commitment from government to phase out the use of peat. No more new licences will be granted. Obviously, there are some old existing licences left and careful work will have to go on around those. But there's an absolute commitment to phase this out. So, Uh, We'll have to meet in five years, Chris, and uh, hopefully we'll have some positive news. Okay, I'll hold you to that one, Rebecca. But like many in the industry, we've all been eagerly waiting for the England peat strategy as well. Can you give us any indication when this is coming up and when it's going to be announced? Yes, again, this is a huge piece of work that a huge amount of work's gone into. It's actually an action plan, really, to restore all of our peat. And it will be released, as we like to say, in government parliance shortly. (laughs) I never know how long shortly lasts (laughs) for. (laughs) But it will, uh, because we're doing so much in the nature space. We've got the tree strategy, we've got the peat action plan as such. The RHS has just rerun a survey and our respondents, have, 42% of them, have said they have a concern for environment. So you do have a community of gardeners here. We, we often talk about that number of 30 million gardeners. So you have a hugely engaged audience within the gardening world. And yet I think sometimes gardeners can feel a little bit out on a limb or not being taken seriously enough by government or policy. Do you think that gardeners are being listened to? Well, do you know, it's an interesting point you make, and I've made it myself. And that's partly why I'm so interested in this horticultural peat issue, because I come from your similar background, Chris. I know about this army of people on the ground. They're literally the foot soldiers, aren't they? They've got their hands in the soil. And also, so there's a million hectares tied up. In our gardens. In our gardens, as a so nature reserve. So that is reserve. a massive nature resource. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, not to be underestimated. So harnessing those people is really valuable. And I hope, actually, that we can harness all your readers and gardeners to join us in our big plan for the COP26, where we're hoping to get everybody involved in a groundswell of planting something. So I'll tell you about that 
shortly. I'm running out of diary dates here, Rebecca. <laughs> I, can't, I can't keep up. But look, we would love to hear more about that. But also, you know, it is reassuring and enlightening to hear somebody in your position to be able to talk about the environment with such passion and honesty. So, Rebecca, thank you very much for your time. And we look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. Minister and MP Rebecca Pow. Well, that's it for this week's show. For lots more help and advice on gardening without peat and to read the RHS's peat-free pledge, just visit rhs.org.uk forward slash peat or see the links in the show notes. And if you've been inspired to become a more carbon-friendly gardener, then why not listen back to our episode titled Low Carbon Gardening, where we heard from no-dig veg-growing guru Charles Dowding and author of How to Garden the Low Carbon Way, Sally Nix. But until next time, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.